HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by you. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate to become a member today. There's everything from paleontology to astronomy and marine biology. And it's just this incredibly diverse set of research that's happening down there. And so when I left, I decided to make cakes that help to share some of those stories and help to answer a lot of questions that people were asking me. On this episode of Meet and 3, we're embracing the wintry weather to bring you stories about extreme cold. You just heard a bit from artist and pastry chef Rose McAdoo, who uses cake to illustrate her experiences living in Antarctica. More from her soon. We've also got stories about winter frosts, MREs designed to nourish armed forces in sub-zero temperatures, and a throwback story about luxury ice. I'm Kat Johnson, and this is Meet and 3. Meet and three. Meet and three. Meet and three. One meat, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meet and three. First up this week, Rowan O'Connell Gates breaks down how some vegetables actually benefit from being exposed to frost in the winter growing season. Year after year, winter's plummeting temperatures pose a distinct challenge for the world's farming communities. The season's first frosts are often accompanied by a mad dash amongst farmers to protect their produce. Crops such as mescaline, spinach, and basil must be tarped in order to preserve their delicate leaves from initial icy storms. However, When it comes to starchy vegetables like sweet potatoes, kohlrabi, and carrots, farmers can sit back and allow winter's chill to permeate their plots. You may be wondering, what's the reasoning behind these differing approaches? As always, science seems to have the answers. Most people know that starches break down into sugars. Beyond that, things get a little hairy for most of us who didn't study chemistry or biology. So bear with me. In simplest terms, frosts cause the water in plant cells to freeze. Subsequently, the cell walls burst due to the inner icy expansion. As you might have figured, when this occurs, it spells the end of a plant's life, but not for our starchy winter favorites. In a stroke of nature's ingenuity, certain vegetables have developed a way to combat the cold. 
These plants are able to discern the dropping temperatures and begin the process of protecting their cells from freezing. The plants do so by increasing enzymatic activity. These enzymes help the plants break down starches into simple sugars. Why does this help the plant? Because more simple sugars equal less liquid and more solids. In short, less cell liquid to freeze. Think of the whole process as similar to salting a roast chicken or a beautiful steak. One does so not just for flavor, but so that the flesh becomes tender and juicy. A frost, for starchy vegetables, is also changing the inner structure of the produce, and in turn, creating a more flavorful product. But what's in it for us, the consumer? Why should you care about enzymes and starches? Well, if you're like me, you love a roasted sweet potato or a thinly sliced cabbage salad, and both of those delicious winter vegetables become sweeter and more flavorful after a frost. It makes sense if you think about it. An increase in simple sugars results in produce with more sweetness and fresh flavor. Even leafier vegetables such as kale, collard greens, and Brussels sprouts can benefit from a winter frost. So the next time you're lamenting another blustery December day, try and find a particularly sweet carrot or a deeply flavored Japanese sweet potato. You'll have winter to thank. Next, Jessica Kreinchich takes us to the ends of the earth for a conversation with artist and pastry chef Rose McAdoo, whose work in Antarctica has connected the dots between desserts and social justice. She's taught baking workshops in prisons, made pastry in the wilderness with her bakepacking project, turned vegetables into dessert, and baked with tribes in East Africa. But pastry chef Rose McAdoo's latest expedition is making a trip to the McMurdo Research Station in Antarctica. She's an artist and activist who uses cake to initiate conversations about human rights, global crises, and climate change. There's one thing to go on a hike out on the ice shelf and see a bunch of Waddell seals and hear them communicating with each other in Antarctica. And then there's another thing to actually making a Waddell seal out of cake and personally attaching the little tracker unit that I've made out of sugar. And, you know, instead of epoxying that tracker unit to an actual seal, like scientists are doing down on the ice, you know, making this unit out of sugar and epoxying it with royal icing. Um, And so kind of getting to replicate that science, but just in the way that is true to my art and true to what I care about. It's been a really fun way to just play and, and experience Antarctica in a much different way, too. This realistic seal she made out of cake is just one of the delectable projects she's completed to get people interested and involved in the causes she's passionate about. It also gives you a space to engage in some larger, possibly more challenging or more polarizing um, conversations and ideas like climate change and environmental science and and immigration policy and these like really heavy topics uh, that a lot of people are scared to interact with or don't feel good about even reading about, quite frankly. And the thing that I've realized with cake is that because it is so frivolous and because it is so special and unnecessary, 
it's a fun way for people to engage. And they happen to accidentally engage in this case in these bigger topics. So how did she end up going to work and live on an ice cap in Antarctica? I really missed backpacking and uh, I missed my time living in Alaska and just engaging with the world in a, a much more remote way. But I definitely wanted to be out um, living with glaciers and backpacking and sleeping out of my tent again. And so I got a job down there last year. So I, I actually left New York on Christmas Eve of 2018 and started the four-day journey down to McMurdo Station, which is the largest research base on the continent. And I've definitely went down there just to just to live in Antarctica. I mean, there was no ulterior motive there. But the way that I love to interact with the world and the way that I love to tell stories and share my personal opinions and experiences is through cake. The research being performed at the McMurdo Station might sometimes seem inaccessible to us lay people, but Rosa's artistic medium translates the science into something everyone can understand and enjoy. There's everything from paleontology to astronomy and marine biology, and it's just this incredibly diverse set of research that's happening down there. And so when I left, I decided to make cakes that help to share some of those stories and help to answer a lot of questions that people were asking me. Um, you know, what, what sort of research is being done? What's life there like on the daily? How do you get all of your materials? And cake has just been the most exciting way for me to stay connected to the Antarctic community and also just to appreciate and engage with it in a different way. But what actually goes into feeding an entire community of scientists and other workers in such an extreme climate? Rose explained that an Alaskan subcontractor based in Denver, Colorado, takes care of the logistics. There's a ton of people in that office year-round making the rations, prepping all of the recipes, strategizing, you know, looking at projections from the last five seasons and projecting for the future based on how many resupply vessels we're getting, you know, what our population might expand or decrease to at various times of the year. And there's so many people watching the ration, watching the inventory. And I mean, things still happen. If you use salt frivolously, you're going to run out of salt and not have it for a couple months, which happened to us this summer. Despite the challenges that come with cooking in the Antarctic, Rose says that most people who embark on this journey tend to return to work there for multiple seasons. It's an old, like an old phrase kind of bouncing around that anyone who's not tied down in life falls down to the bottom of the earth. And so this idea that the people in Antarctica have gone through so much medical testing and so many interviews and have worked, have really applied themselves to detach from life and go down to be a very intentional part of this community on an ice cap in the middle of nowhere, um, you end up really becoming close with everyone. Rose is an artist, an activist, and an adventurer. The food she cooks in the Antarctic supports a team making important scientific discoveries, and the cakes she crafts back home bring awareness to these scientists' efforts. And who doesn't want to learn through eating? To see more of her travels and amazing cakes, check out her website at whiskmeawaycakes.com. We'll be right back with more Meat and 3 after this short break.
This episode is brought to you by you. Heritage Radio Network makes your favorite food podcasts. And now we need you to lend your voice to our community and show your support of food radio. Become a member today. HRN releases 35 weekly shows each week and is a globally respected voice in food media. But believe it or not, we're still a very small grassroots organization. HRN is powered by a small but mighty staff of four people and HRN's incredible hosts who volunteer their time to bring you the best food podcasts out there. Our hosts are experts in their field, whether it's food writing, mixology, culinary history, craft beer, LGBTQ issues, and so much more. And they're committed to making sure that the stories that matter to you keep coming each week. We believe that a thoughtful, committed group can change the world. So join us. Add your voice and support HRN by making a donation of any amount. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Welcome back to Meat in Three. For our next story, Ruby Walsh looks at military meals designed to last in both the freezing cold and the blazing heat. Men make the Navy. They make it strong, welded into smooth, powerful fighting units. But the Navy also makes men. For the prime requisite of every Navy man is a sound, healthy body. That was a 1942 recruitment film for the U.S. Navy. Rows of lean, uniformed men exercise in unison, as the commanding voice promises that you too could be fit if you join the military. But what the film omits is that during their service, these seemingly healthy soldiers were fed some of the most revolting food imaginable. I'm talking about MREs, otherwise known as Meals Ready to Eat. At times, these lightweight, packaged rations are all that military members have to live off of. And the military has served it all from the beef bouillon powder cake of the 20s, to the dehydrated jerky of the 40s, to the pouch of taco meat that's distributed today. MREs are built to withstand even the most extreme conditions. Unfortunately, that means that the heavily processed foods end up being pretty unappetizing. So much so that MREs are commonly referred to as meals rarely edible. In my opinion, I believe that having a conversation about military food um, and, and the American food system is actually something that's really intertwined. And I also seem to, uh, I really believe that it's something that's missing uh, just in the entire conversation of like food health in the States. That's Chuck George, chef and CEO of Hubble, a company that develops back office software for restaurants. Ever since he was a little kid, Chuck has been fascinated by MREs. Whenever his father returned from military service, he would come bearing unusual gifts. Uh, he always came home with a goodie bag of MREs. Um, and I was a bit of a fan, mainly because as a young boy, you can sort of uh, go on adventures, and they were pretty cool at the time, even though they didn't taste good. Chuck's interest in the weird world of military food has only grown since then. Back in 2017, he teamed up with videographer Jimmy Pham and photographer Henry Hargreaves, to plate and photograph MREs as if they were high-class meals. I spoke with Chuck to hear more about the idea behind the project. So I'd gotten together with Jimmy uh, because I was really interested in exploring creative ways to use the contents of an MRE. And he happened to know Henry, uh, who actually had some experience with this sort of thing. So we took MREs um, from a few countries, Lithuania, South Korea, um, France was in there. Uh, and essentially we, we 
we took the contents uh, and, and we got really creative with it. We just sort of reimagined um, what those meals would look like in a, a Michelin-starred restaurant. So they squeezed the food out of their pouches. And after drizzling sauces and garnishing plates, photographed meals that looked restaurant-ready. It's amazing what you can do with an MRE, to be quite honest. We were like... We were utilizing the juice of a, of a pineapple to wet the, the, the cut of a power bar, essentially, and then dust it with, with chopped nuts. But the team didn't take on the project with the intention of making the meals look edible. I think we just wanted to reimagine the most unappealing food and plate it as though it were being served in a Michelin-starred restaurant. Uh, but then, you know, really below that, um, we wanted to really generate a conversation about the quality of food served to our, our, our nation's bravest uh, and really to kind of ask two questions. Is it enough, um, you know, in terms of what, what, what's being offered? And what does it say about the value that we put um, on our own forces? For most, MREs are out of sight and out of mind. By photographing the plates, Chuck George and his colleagues encourage people to look closely at meals that they would otherwise never see. I think more attention needs to be paid with, with the type of ingredients that are going into the MRE. I think there needs to be more transparency. The way it is now is for all the rigorous testing that a menu must go through to meet and earn the title of an MRE, um, there's very little stipulation uh, as to the level of quality of the menu ingredients. Uh, and I think, you know, that, that leaves a lot of room for having refined sugars, having your high fructose corn syrups and ingredients like that. You know, they increase toxicity, they decrease nutritional value. You end up having this antibiotic resistance in some cases. And then what that does is these same MREs get sent out on a natural disaster with FEMA and people that are really sedentary end up eating them for months at a time. Uh, and obviously, you know, that's not what they're meant for. The military's pouches of meat may seem completely alien to most of us. But according to Chuck George, MREs have already influenced the American diet. So much of the processes that, that go into these, these, um, these MREs, you can find them on the grocery store. Um, you know, certainly not on the perimeter, all the healthy stuff is. But once you get into those middle aisles, you know, uh, things like powdered cheese, um, even deli meats, uh, all of that stuff really, really comes down from, from developing things for the military. Canned goods, another good example. Um, and, and so, you know, that, that affects a lot of, I think, what the food system looks like in the States. Um, you know, I think over 50% uh, of things like that are processed and, and have some relationship to what the development of the MRE was. MREs have been left out of the discussion about improving the food system, and they deserve a place at that table. The MRE is so far out of the conversation that it's like nobody considers it at all. We're all talking about Beyond Meat and all these other things. You know, the sweet greens and the dig-ins, like those guys, they, they do great work and I understand what, what they're trying to accomplish. But they're really, they're really focused on a really specific demographic of, of people. And, and there's a lot of people in middle America that, that are hurting for better quality food. To find out more about Chuck George's project, you can watch the video that his team made at vimeo.com slash jimmyfam. For our final frosty story this week, we throw it back to episode 27 of Meat and 3, Dead of Winter, when Nina Medvinskaya reported on the surprising industry of luxury ice. Water. It's the elixir of our lives and something that no human can live without. We drink it plain or flavor it in countless ways. We cook and clean with it. And we even transform its state by heating it to the point of evaporation or freezing it until it turns to ice. 
In fact, ice is something we could count on finding in most American freezers. Whether it's a bag of crushed ice from the deli, or it's taking shape in one of those ubiquitous trays. And no matter how health-savvy we are, most likely we aren't too concerned about what kind of water our ice is made from. Yet a determined businessman believes it's time we start taking our ice a bit more seriously. Well, actually, a lot more seriously. My name is Roberto Sequita, and I am the founder of the Gloss Luxury Ice Company. Mr. Sequita thinks that if you're drinking top-shelf liquor, then you'd better be pairing it with top-shelf ice. His company, Gloss Luxury Ice, is based in California, and it offers consumers individually carved pieces of ice purified of minerals, additives, and other pollutants, but accompanied with a hefty price tag. The ice costs $325 for the pack of 50 that it's sold in. That's $6.50 per cube. The idea was to exhaust all things that consumers use and, and surround themselves with. Restaurants are beginning to name their source of beef and salmon and, and uh, mustards, you name it. But for some reason, we couldn't explain why ice was overlooked the world over. There are ice boxes. They just simply said ice. Mr. Sakita's goal is to address the inconsistencies in the product by creating ice that is completely free of impurities. For even in safe drinking water, chemicals like chlorine and fluoride are usually added to kill bacteria and pathogens. At one point in the history of modern civilization, the quality of the ice was dependent on the quality of the lake from which it was harvested. And as man has increased its footprint on the globe, those sort of pristine, raw sources became less and less and less. Although Gloss Luxury Ice's product comes with several perks, such as a slower melting rate, with some cubes taking as long as 40 minutes to fully melt, as well as a crystal clear clarity in its ice cubes, the company mainly prides itself on containing absolutely no contaminants so that the taste of a high-quality drink won't be impacted by any superfluous flavors. The rocks traditionally becomes 25% of your drink's volume, and as such, it imparts smells and tastes. Unlike traditional ice or ice molds that may be dependent on the local source water, we would have to bring no smell and no taste to the equation so that the consumer would enjoy the true spirit of whatever he or she was drinking. And that's important because I believe that it was about achieving the zenith that we call the perfect serve. Mr. Sakira is of the mind that if people are investing in their spirits, then they should be aware of everything that goes into their drink and potentially affects its taste. Although he is passionate about his product, he is aware that it's not something that most people would invest in. We are not insensitive or ignorant to the fact that many people decide that DIY is the way to go. And I think that that's okay. If you have more time than means, then sure, right? But we offer a turnkey solution to hospitality accounts and consumers around the world. And it's something that I think we're proud of. So whether you're fine continuing with your casual ice runs, or you've been looking for a way to really enhance your on-the-rocks drinking experience, ice is an ingredient that's impossible to avoid. And now that you know luxury is an option... You may think twice the next time you casually drop a cube into your drink. If you want to hear even more wintry food tales, listen back to episode 27 of Meat and 3. That's our show. Next week on Meat and 3, we investigate the mystifying world of pregnancy myths. So have your pickles and peanut butter ready. Special thanks this week to Rowan O'Connell Gates, Jessica Kreinchich, Ruby Walsh, and Nina Medvinskaya. 
Meet and Three is produced by Matt Patterson, Hannah Forden, Katie Mosman-Wadler, and me, Kat Johnson, with lead production this week by Nicole Cornwell. The show is engineered by Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meet and Three is powered by Simplecast. Meet and Three is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And please stay in touch. Whether you have a story idea or would just like to say hello, write us at ideas at meetand3.nyc. That's all spelled out. Hi, I'm Sherry Bayer, the host of All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm thrilled to let you know about Host, Summit Plus Social, a new conference for and about the hospitality industry, taking place Monday, January 27th, 2020, at the William Vale in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, New York City. Based on my All in the Industry show, Host, which stands for Hospitality Operations, Services, and Technology, will bring behind-the-scenes talent in hospitality to the forefront in a live format, featuring guests from some of my most popular episodes, including Drew Niporent, Rita Jamey, Crystal Mobiani, J.J. Johnson, and Jeff Gordonier. Our event will include intimate panels, one-on-one interviews, industry news discussions, curated lunch conversations, and more. Plus, of course, we will have outstanding food and drink throughout the day, including an energizing closing reception. For more information and tickets, please go to allintheindustry.com. And also, please follow us at All Industry on Instagram and Twitter. I hope you will join us in celebrating our dynamic hospitality industry. Many thanks.